study in, in, the, in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells us a lot about the church. And what's interesting is at various points of time throughout the history of Christianity, there have been certain events that are so significant that they either changed the course of church history or perhaps more accurately kept the church from going off into weird directions. For instance, perhaps maybe one of the most important events in the history of the church occurred in 325 AD, and that was the Council of Nicaea. In the Council of Nicaea, there was some really strange teaching going on in the 4th century. For from the very beginning of the church, from the first century, from Pentecost, the church had always believed that Jesus was eternal, that he has no beginning and he has no end. He is not a finite being. But some strange teaching started to come into the church saying, no, there was a, that Jesus is a created being. There was a time when Jesus was not. And at the Council of Nicaea, they squashed that false teaching and returned back to the biblical teaching that Jesus is, in fact, divine and he is not a created being. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Very, very significant event. In 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, there was also some strange ideas going on. They did not hold to the first century understanding of the nature of Jesus. And in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, they reaffirmed what the early church had always believed, and that was that Jesus was fully God and fully divine, that you cannot divide his divinity and his, and his humanity. That was a turning point. That was a very crucial time of church history. And then we get into the the 16th century at the Diet of Worms. And if you're a kid with a yellow sheet, you should probably note there is a little thing that says Diet of Worms. That is not a misprint. Um, <clears throat> nobody actually ate worms at this meeting. A diet was just a council and worms, um, German, V, W is a V, is pronounced as a V. So it is the Diet or the Council of Worms. And in that at that council, at that diet, if you will, um, really we see the beginnings of Protestantism. It was at that diet of Worms where Martin Luther, I think, finally came to the... It was that separation. We are not going to reform the, we are not going to reform the Roman church. It's going to be separate. We believe that a man is justified by faith through grace and on the merits of Christ alone, and that's the only way a person is going to, to be saved. They are not going to be saved any other way. And the Roman church would not endorse that. And at that point, back to the first century, that a person is saved by grace through faith on the merits of Christ alone. These are very, very significant events in the life of the church. And I'm going to say that Acts chapter 6 is one of those utterly and completely significant events. This was the opportunity for the church to go off into some really, really aberrant teaching, some really um, wrong ideas about what Christ had done in his earthly ministry and is now doing in his heavenly ministry. And this is Acts chapter 6 records for us one of the most insidious threats, at least at this point, to come along to the church. And so this is, I believe, one of the 
most significant events in the life of the church. We'll also see one when we get to Acts chapter 15. Again, another one of those utterly significant events in the life of the church. And, and we shouldn't be surprised. We've been seeing so far that the church has, has been um, attacked in a variety of different ways. We've seen a lot of great things going on in the church. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came and filled the believers and they began to speak with other languages. And on that day, 3,000 people came to know Christ. That's a miracle. And imagine, I think pine and strawberry is 3,000 people. Imagine one day, on one day, after one sermon, every man, woman, and child in pine and strawberry confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Would anybody deny that that is a complete miracle of God? Of course we, we wouldn't deny that. And then they heal, the, the apostles heal a man who was lame from birth. He'd never walked, not a moment in his life had he ever walked. And they said, silver and gold I don't have, but here's what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he did. And then 5,000 people came to know Christ. So we're seeing incredible things going on in the life of the church. But there have also been some serious, serious threats. For instance, it began by the people mocking the disciples. Oh, you're just drunk. It can't be true whatever you're saying. You're just, you're inebriated. That's the problem. We see them being um, uh, imprisoned. And then uh, last week and the week before, we saw that they were actually flogged or whipped, beaten, um, and imprisoned. So there are these threats against the church. And, and so um, the other thing, and, and Charlie spoke on this with the, the thing of Ananias and Sapphira, that was a threat against the church. Sin was taking root in the church and God, by his mercies, rooted that sin out of the church. And so we're seeing, uh, basically, there are three different ways that the church gets attacked. We've seen two of them today. We'll, we'll look at the third. Three different ways that the church often gets attacked. The first one is through persecution. And that can be physical or it can be even social. That, so it can be physical, like, you know, we're going to beat you up. When we get to the Apostle Paul, we're going to see he goes to one city, preaches the gospel, gets beat up. Goes to the next city, preaches the gospel, gets beat up. Goes to the next city, preaches the gospel, gets beat up. That's, that's basically how Paul goes about his life in uh, as a missionary. So we see that. We also see there being a, a social ostracization, so a shaming the people. Get them to silence the gospel. That's one. The other one is sin, and we talked about that in Acts chapter 5. Today we're going to look at another, the third way the church gets threatened, and that's through dissension. Three modes of attack, persecution, sin, and dissension. So let me give you just a quick preview of the way of where I hope to be going today. And what we're going to look at today is a very, very sophisticated uh, attack on the church. Unlike persecution, which is rather crude, just beat the people up, this is a very sophisticated, very subtle attack. And it, one of the things that makes it so sophisticated is that the warfare actually occurs on two fronts. And the first front is dissension, because we all know that a house divided against itself won't stand. So if I can divide the church... The enemies of the church, whether they be spiritual or natural, can divide the church. We can keep it weak and keep it from functioning and keep all these great works of God from, from happening. So dissension. And then alongside of that, and this is even much, much more subtle, which I think makes it so dangerous, and that is dilution. 
That is the diluting of the potency of the preaching of God's word. And I'm going to deal with that next week. Today we're just going to deal with dissension. But two things are going to go on here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. First, split the church. Second, dilute the potency of God's word. If those two things occur, the church will be severely weakened. And so um, I'm going to just kind of give you a hint. That doesn't happen. So I know I gave away the story, but... um, book of Acts gives us a lot of information about the church, the early church, and then hopefully from that we can draw and learn about how do we, as a church, function? How do we live? How do we live together? How do we organize our church? How do we do things? How do we live together as the people of God? So I hope that our understanding as we learn how God has designed his church to function, that we can um, grow and uh, be strengthened as not only as individuals, but as a corporate body as well. So let's go ahead. I'm going to read our text today, and then I'll uh, spend a little bit of time dealing with this idea of dissension or division. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before them the apostles. And they set them before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to your word. And I pray that you would bless not only the reading of the word, but the hearing of the word. Keep us now in Christ's name. Amen. So just a little bit of context. You'll remember the, the apostles had been imprisoned and then they had been brought before um, the Jewish council and they'd been put on trial. And uh, there were two groups of the trial. One group said, you need to kill them. Let's, let's just put them to death. And then another guy rose up and he offered another opinion. And he said his name was Gamaliel. And basically he said, listen, leave them alone. If what they're doing is of God, you can't thwart it. And if what they're doing isn't of God, it'll come to nothing. And they listened to, to Gamaliel's advice. So they didn't kill him. But they did beat him up pretty badly. It says that they, uh, um, that they flogged them. And we don't know if they gave how bad or how severe that was. But... But then they let him go and said, don't preach in, that, in the name of Jesus anymore. And they let him go and they went out and started preaching in the name of Jesus. That's kind of, in other words, their attempts to intimidate both physically and socially um, didn't work. And you'll notice how our text today begins. Now, in these days, which days? The days in which the, the disciples had been um, ostracized and had been ashamed and had been beaten in those days when they were under threat, under legal threat not to preach the gospel, in the days when they disregarded those rules and went around preaching the gospel, in those days, notice what was happening, the disciples were increasing in number. So you would think, well, with that kind of uh, physical and 
social hindrances. You would think that the church would shrink. It would get small. That people would say, I don't want to become a Christian. Are you kidding me? Look what's going to happen to us. In those days, the number of disciples increased in number. Now, we often think that when a church grows or disciples increase in numbers, we always think, well, that's awesome. Well, it is awesome. But it also comes with some issues. Growth always has some problems, and there is a problem. And the problem is this. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, and the reason was because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, here's our, so here's our issue. Here's the problem. Here's the crisis. There's a complaint. And the complaint is that one group is being, un, is being treated unfairly. That one group is getting special preference. One group is getting special treatment. The other group is getting neglected. And so the Hellenist widows complain of neglect and favoritism toward the Hebrew wid- widows in regards to the distribution. And we see this in Acts 4.35. We see what this distribution is. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So people were selling their property and bringing it to the apostles, and then they were distributing it to those who had need. Now in our text today, there are two groups. Both groups are widows. And they were in need. One was the Hellenist, was called the Hellenist group, and, and the other were the Hebrew groups. And the Hellenists were saying, you know, we're not getting our distribution. We're not getting the money, the food, the clothing, the, the requirements that we need to survive. Meanwhile, some other group over on the other side of town is getting plenty. And we've got a problem. So before we go along, let me um, describe for you or hopefully clarify a little bit about who these two groups were. I think it's important to understand who these two groups were for us to understand the, uh, uh, the text of, of, of what's going, going on here. So, Hellenists, the Hellenists were basically Greek-speaking Jews, Jewish people, but they spoke Greek, and they probably were, they lived outside, they originally lived um, outside of Jerusalem. So they were dispersed. Some people call it the dispersion. And so in my map here, here's Jerusalem. This is where our event is taking place. And the dispersion at this time is this purple area. So all over here, this is kind of uh, uh, the Babylonian area. So you'll remember people got um, uh, exiled. And so there's still a lot of Jews living in, um, uh, in the Assyrian Babylonian area, Asia Minor over in here. A little bit up in here, some, all of this is kind of Galatia, and then northern Africa. So these are Greek-speaking Jews, and they probably came to Jerusalem after their, perhaps after their, their husbands died, and this is pre- pretty much where they're going to be taken care of. But they don't speak Aramaic, and they don't understand that their culture is different. Then there's another group, and they're the Hebrews. They're Aramea- Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they've always lived in Israel. So I think we need to understand who these, who these groups are. I hope I don't bore you with that little background um, understanding or that little background piece of information, but I think it's going to help us to understand what the beef was. And, and the problem here now is we have a collision of, of cultures. We have two different cultures and two different languages. This is not a theological issue. 
This is not even a racial issue. It's not theological because these widows have actually come to know Christ. They were Jewish, Jewish women who followed the law. They heard the preaching of the gospel, confessed their sins, called upon the name of the Lord, and now they're not going to be taken care of by the Jewish community. The Jewish community says, you've accepted Christ. You've abandoned your faith. Let the Christians take care of you. And so now they're being taken care of by Christians, by the, by the church. It's not theological. They believe that Jesus is Lord. They believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. They believed in salvation by grace through faith on the merits of Christ. They understand that. They believe this is not a theological issue. It is not racial. They're pretty much of the the same race. This is cultural. This is an issue of language. How many know that language can divide us? Um, I mean, even even as a church, even even as Christians, and um, if we don't understand what one another are saying, it's very difficult for us to worship together. And I long for the day when we do not have Spanish churches and Vietnamese churches. I long for the day we don't have English churches. It grieves me, and I, I am not. This is just my own little rant. I understand that churches are, are doing their very very best when they're living in uh, a multicultural, multi-ethnic neighborhood to try to meet all the needs. But I look forward to a day when it is the people of God, regardless of language, are not being, well, the Spanish church meets at this time and the Vietnamese church meets at this time and the Korean church meets at that time and the English-speaking church meets at this time and they all meet at different times during, uh, during the Lord's Day. And I look forward to the day when it's like, guess what? The Vietnamese, the Koreans, the Hispanics, and the, the English, and whoever else are all meeting as one body in one place at the same time, worshiping our God together. I think technology is going to play a big, big role in that. But right now, I, so this is what's going on. They're separated. They're separated by language. They're separated by culture. Culture sometimes um, really um, divides people. It shouldn't, but it does. And for instance, we were talking to a... I was talking to a missionary from Korea, and he said one of the problems with Westerners, especially younger Westerners who come over to Korea, is that they think the Koreans are very, very rude, and especially the young Koreans, you know, those millennials. Got to blame everything on millennials, right? Those millennial Koreans, because, you know what, I was getting ready to have a nice conversation. They were so rude, they asked me how old I was. What a rude thing. What, I mean, in the West, right, you never ask somebody, what kind of rude question is that? You're wondering how old I am? Don't you know that's personal? You don't ever ask somebody how old they are. Well, in Korea, the Korean language has like seven levels of, um, of honor in their language. So if you're speaking to a dignitary, you're going to use a certain phrasing, a certain, I don't, I don't want to call it a dialect, um, Spanish has. Spanish has a formal and an informal way of speaking. So there are seven different levels of formality. And if you're speaking to somebody of a, very, of a high level, you're going to speak in a very formal way. And if you're speaking to your friend, you're not going to speak to them formally. You're going to speak to them very casually. So when they, one of the ways that they are going to determine what, which way, how formal is my, my speech going to be to you, how formally am I going to treat you, is by age, because an older person will um, be spoken to in a higher 
level of uh, formality. So when they ask you their age, they're not being rude. They're just saying, how do I treat you right? I need to speak to you in the right light. So we take great offense and think, oh, how dare you ask me how old I am? And they're just saying, I need to honor you in the right way. I need to speak to you in a way that is not demeaning. I just want to be kind to you. I want to treat you with respect. So you can see, cultures divide. This is what's going on. Culture and language are dividing these two groups. And as a result, one is saying, we're not getting our fair distribution, and another group is. So what's the solution? Well, there's a couple of different solutions. And I think before the, I think the disciples, before coming up with a solution, understand, understand exactly what the problem is. Because the solution is grounded in understanding what is the threat. What is the threat here? So what? You have two different groups of people and then just figure it out. What is the threat? Well, the threat is serious. This is a serious threat to the early church. It's threatening to split the church in two. It is threatening to split the church into a Hellenistic church and a Hebrew church. Listen, just let the Hellenists speak their Greek language over there and they can go to church. After all, there is a, there is a Greek-speaking synagogue and there is an Aramaic-speaking synagogue. They're used to it. That's the way the Jewish synagogues work. They just split them. And let the, the Hebrews worship over there, and you can call it the first Hebrew church of Israel, and let the Hellenists go and speak over there, and that will be the first Hellenist church of Jerusalem. And y'all can just worship Christ on your own. And the, the apostles are saying, no, that is a threat. That may be what they're accustomed to, but the body of Christ is one, and we are not going to divide the church. It would have been easier. That way, you know, people don't have to actually interact with one another. People who have nothing in common don't actually have to rub shoulders and rub elbows with one another. But the apostles understand that people who are disparate, people who are from two completely different groups, need to be together because Christ is not divided. And so I don't care that you speak Aramaic and you speak Hebrew. Figure out a way to fellowship and love one another figure out a way to serve one another. And folks, we should never let culture and age and language and all of these things keep us from, from, from fellowshipping together. In fact, I would say that is the strength of the church. When people who ought not get along with one another gather together in the same place and worship our Lord together. That's right, Republicans and Democrats actually worshiping our Lord together. That's right. People of different age groups, different socioeconomic standpoints, different education levels, different interests, different backgrounds, all of these groups gathering together under the banner of the risen Christ to proclaim his name. The world looks that, at that and says, what in the world? They should not be getting along. Why are they happy with one another? Why do they care for one another? Why do they love one another? See, it's a lot easier to say, let's just have a young people's church. Or let's just have a church for a bunch of old folks. Because we don't need those young people playing their crazy music. And we don't want babies around because they just make noise. They cry and whine. Put them, you know, we don't want that. No. We want a church gathered together because we're gathered under the, salve under the risen Christ. Not because of our education or lack of it. Or because of the amount of money we have or the, the lack of it. We gather together because we belong to Christ. And this was the threat. They understand the body of Christ cannot be divided. 
So that's the first threat. The first threat here against the church is this threat of being divided along cultural lines. This is not theological. Remember, Paul and John and all of the apostles made a clear dividing line when it came to theological matters. So when Paul is dealing with heretical Christians who are called Judaizers saying you're saved by works and not by grace, Paul said, yeah, we got nothing to do with you. This is a severe doctrinal issue. A group called the Gnostics came along and, and began to influence the church. And basically they said um, that Christ didn't have a physical body, that he must have been only a spirit, that he didn't actually live in a physical body. John says, oh, no, we got nothing to do with you. This is theological. And sometimes there are theological reasons why we, we will... Um, disengage with one another. But that's not what's going on here. This is just culture. You don't speak the same language and you don't have the same customs. That is no reason for you to be separate. So that's the first one. The second one, and let me just mention this and I'm going to come back to it next week. The second threat here is to draw the apostles away from their God-ordained task to do something else. They're preaching the word. They're sharing the gospel of salvation. They're talking about we were witnesses to the risen Christ. And now here's the threat. It's very subtle. Stop doing that and come serve tables. Come serve the widows. I want you to understand how important it is to take care of the poor. Nobody here and nobody in Acts chapter 6 is saying taking care of the widows is an unnecessary or unimportant need. Everybody's agreeing. This is an important thing. It needs to be dealt with. We need to take care of the poor. God, from the very beginning, has told us to take care of widows. So we will. But I want you to understand the threat here was, the threat was stop proclaiming the gospel and give all of your time to serving the needy. I want you to understand that's a huge threat. It's a threat today. And I'm going to spend some time dealing with that next week, so come back. And we'll talk a little bit about the importance and the primacy of the gospel in the church. This was the threat to dilute the potency of the preached word in order to take care of the poor. If the apostles get it right, we're going to do both. We're going to do both. We're going to make sure that the word of God is proclaimed because salvation, it is the gospel that saves. So the only reason you have this problem and you have a whole lot of people in the church and some of them are not getting their needs, but the only reason you have that is because the word went forth and people got saved. You can't stop doing that. And so we want to make sure that we do not dilute the potency of the proclaimed word, even for a noble cause. On the other hand, we've got to make sure that we do not neglect social ministry as well. So there is this, this very interesting tension going on in this particular text. So what is the solution? First of all, the apostles understood what the problem is. They understood that the church, that the body of Christ is one and we cannot divide the body of Christ. They need to be together. And so the solution then is understanding that the, that the body of Christ is made up of many members and that all members have a vital and distinct role. Here's the solution. What they're going to do is they're going to choose seven people and say, listen, you are gifted and you have the ability to do these things. I'm going to ask you to do this and we're going to go do and we're going to go and preach the word. So in other words, the body that is one has many members and each of those members plays a vital role. And when all the body and all of the members are functioning in the task that God has called them to do, this body functions well. And so, if you have a yellow paper, you might want to uh, 
Think about this idea that God will use me in his church. I want you to think about that. Not just if you have a yellow paper. Everybody needs to hear that very simple phrase. God will use me in his church. Because if you are part of the body, you play a role in the church. Now, of course, we see this truth developed in the book of Romans. In fact, Charlie read that today in Romans chapter 12. It talks about how there are many, many different roles that need to happen. Uh, some people have this ability and some people have that ability. But we all play, we all function within the body of Christ. Ephesians, of course, deals with this. Um, that God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as, um, um, as teachers for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body. Then, of course, the most famous place is in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the body of Christ. And he talks about there are many different members. And every member plays a role. And nobody can say, I don't play a role. You can't say, well, because I'm not an I, I have no part in the body. Paul says, no, not everybody can be an I. Because that's a nightmare, right? The body that's just one big I, that's grotesque. No, we all need our, we all want our eyes. But if the whole body was an eye, it's like, hmm. Paul is saying that every part of the body functions together. And yeah, there are some eyes and there are some pinky toes and there are some all sorts of parts of the body, but they all fit together. And you can't say, well, you know what, I'm a, I'm a pinky toe, so I'm going to go start First Pinky Toe Church of Payson. All right? Paul's saying, no, you get together with, attach yourself to the rest of the body. And serve and function in the way that God has enabled and equipped and called you to do. And some people are going to be preaching the word. And some people are going to be serving the poor. And they are both important, vital tasks that the church cannot function without. Some of you say, I, don't, I could never get up there in front of everybody and, and teach and, and speak out loud in front of a group of people. I have no problem with it. Sometimes I have... Here's what, Man, there were, there's been a couple of times, and I've said this before, that I've been asked to go and teach a Bible study at the Christian school like to, to like fourth graders. Do you know how nervous I am? Do you know how frightening that is? There are junior high kids, and they're looking at me, and I've got to tell them something. I have no problem here. But a fourth grader? Oh, my goodness. That's scary. And some of you do really, really good. You're like going, really? All right on. Fourth graders or fifth graders, sixth graders, or what? junior high. Not a problem. Because this is the way God has made us. And we don't go and form new organizations, but rather we, we fit ourselves together. So the preaching of the God and serving tables require individuals with distinct giftings and callings that God has given. That's why this is a threat, because the threat is to divide the body and and put eyes over here and noses over there and peaky toes in another area and put you all over the place. And that's, that's violence to the body of Christ. It's to be together. And this is what the, the apostles are really bright. You don't, you see, that's a problem. They're saying this is a problem. So they, they, they work to salute for a solution and they choose seven individuals. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the appointment of those seven. The apostles recommend appointing seven individuals to take the task of caring for the poor. Listen, we understand the poor need to be cared for. We just can't do everything. Let us do the thing that we are called to, and we will get seven other people, and they will do the thing that they are called to. And I got uh, three thoughts in your notes. It says two, note, two thoughts, but um, 
as I started writing, I came up with more, so I forgot to change it. So I actually have three thoughts on the appointment of the seven. The first thought on the appointment of these seven um, individuals who will take care of the widows, um, the first one is to note that, note the organization. I know that seems like, like so obvious, but you need to realize that the, the early church was organized. And as believers and church people, I, I, won't, I see this tendency to think that within the church, the idea of organization is a dirty word. They tend to romanticize the idea about the early church, that the early church was some sort of entity without structures. It was just a bunch of people who loved Jesus, and they got together in people's homes, and there was no leader, there was no structure. They just all got together and did life together. That is not the picture of the early church in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, yes, they did get together, and they did meet in homes. But you will note, there is, there is some level of organization. And here's the other thing that as the church grows, the level of organization increases. Because as an organization grows, or just so I don't misrepresent, as an organism grows, because I think the church is an organism, as the organism grows, so does its complexity. And so right now we're adding a layer of bureaucracy, aren't we? We now have the apostles doing one thing, preaching the word, and we have this other group of people, and they're ministering to the poor. But the early church was not a collection of leaderless, unconnected house churches that just did life together. They were organized. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember earlier I said that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to know Christ, and then later after the healing of the, of the lame man, 5,000 people came to know Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Somebody counted. Somebody counted. This tells you that there's somebody saying, how many are coming together? Remember the, the scripture that I just read to you, that they laid the, the, the proceeds of their sales at the apostles' feet and they distributed it? Oh, I'm sorry. Think about what it takes to distribute. Let's just say you have 20 widows, 20 poor people who need help. And I got a pile of stuff. Somebody's got to sort the stuff. Figure it out, put it in the piles, and figure out who gets what. It's organization. That just doesn't happen because somebody's, oh, well, just whatever. There's a pile of stuff somewhere down on the street there. Go get whatever you want. This is an organized, um, something organized is happening. There are leaders. Clearly, Peter is the leader. Who's doing all the preaching? There are 12 apostles. All 12 apostles went to prison in chapter 5. All 12 of them got incarcerated. Who spoke? And he spoke for them all. Peter spoke. Peter is the, is the preacher here. Peter is clearly the leader of the church. There is a leader. So, organization, this is an organized church. Let me give you a, a, another great example. God is organized. Praise God. I mean, we have such this pushback against the organized church. I'm glad the church is organized. Otherwise, how would you know what time to show up? Right? You wouldn't know. Unless somebody said we meet at 10 o'clock. And then actually be here at 10 o'clock. And somebody op actually opens the door. Turns on the lights. There's organization. But God is organized. And so his body will reflect that organization. Just look, look, at, look at how he made you. You are a, all kinds of systems. You've got a neurological system and a nervous system. And you've got a the way your blood works. Everything works. Very organized. Your body is very organized. In fact, if you're not feeling well, it's because something happened to the organization. If you're saying, I'm not feeling well today, it's because something went wrong along the organizational line. God is very organized and he has created systems. We have hydrological systems and we have all these various systems. God is organized. 
We created an organized world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the church is organized. Now, organization cannot be an end in and of itself. And I think many churches, and, and we've seen this especially in the 80s and 90s, that the other spectrum happened, and that is the church is a business, so it should be run like a business, and the pastor needs to function as a CEO. And obviously, if you're at a really large church, there's a level of organization that is required to function in a church of 2,000 than it is at the church on Randall Place with, what, 60 people or so. That level of church is going to require a level of organization that we just don't have, nor do we need. But organization cannot be an end in of itself. Organization is simply to serve the gospel. So that's the first thought. Church was organized, and a church should be organized. Second thought is this. Character matters. Notice what these guys are going to be doing. They're going to be serving tables. Now, you and I might think, well, that's just a simple job. Anybody can serve tables. I mean, really, how hard is it to put a plate of food outside to somebody? Notice what was required. Who's going to be in charge of this? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. I want people who are good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Character matters. Not one of them is chosen because of their administrative abilities. It's not like, well, find somebody who can organize groups or who can administrate over this or who can put things into nice, neat piles. I'm sure those are important. But that's not the basis on which, on which these seven individuals were called. They were called because of they need to be of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. All through Scripture, when you look at What the Bible says about an elder or a deacon, it does not say, get somebody who has a PhD, get somebody who's smarter than everybody else, get somebody who has this qualification. It always talks about how to get somebody of character. Character is the issue. Now, obviously, you want to have people who who have the skills to do a job, but character matters. In fact, that's what the Bible talks about. It talks about character. I remember talking to a guy... Uh, a pastor, and he was uh, debating between two music leaders, and they were going to hire a new music leader, and there were two. And you know, both were really skilled, and he's like, I don't know how to choose. And I said, well, I don't know if this helps at all, but to me, I would choose them not so much based on which one's the better musician, but which one is the, has the right character. Character matters. And this is, so character matters. These people are people of good repute. That means that um, they are honest. They are living in obedience to Christ. Their life is under the control of the Holy Spirit. They display the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They know and demonstrate the joy of the Lord and wisdom. And and I think this is interesting, that they had to be full of wisdom. Well, where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from God. Well, how do we know the wisdom of God? Well, he wrote it in his book. So to me, when it says full of wisdom, they had to be people of the word. They had to know God's word. Otherwise, you don't know what God has revealed, and you don't have wisdom. You're just making it up. You might have worldly wisdom, but you don't have godly wisdom. So these were people who were of good repute. They were under the control of the Holy Spirit, and they knew God's word. So the first thought, this church was organized. The second one is that the character matters. And the third one, and I, I thought this was interesting, is that this is very local. I want you to understand that this is local. That the giftings of God are primarily expressed in the local church. So many people say, well, when I became a believer, I, got, I was, became part of the church. And they mean, I'm part of the universal church, the church of every believer who, who lives. Well, that's true. God has placed every believer in a local church. And I think every believer needs to be part of a local church. 
Because this is local. This isn't just go wherever and do this. No, this is part of the local church. So understanding that God has placed me in a local expression of his body. And this is where one serves. This is where one functions. This is one where the place where one uses the gifts and callings that God has given them in whatever way. And there are all sorts of different ways that God has gifted and enables us to function, but it's local. So that's the appointment of the seven. So here's what we have. We have this threat, this threat against the Jerusalem church. It is a threat that is going, with its purpose, is to divide the church along cultural lines. And if you can divide the church along cultural lines, you're going to weaken the church. And a house divided against itself will not stand. The answer to that is get people of good character and have them administrate so that everybody can function in their giftings and in their abilities and in, their, uh, and in the things that God has done that. And let them do that in the local church where God has given them. Let them do this in Jerusalem. Not, at this point, they're not being called to do this in Samaria. They're not being called to do this in the uttermost parts of the world. They're going to set up new local churches in Samaria and more local churches in the utter parts, uttermost parts of the world. And those local churches are also going to find gifted and high-character people who function in those local assemblies. This is going to spread, but the, the apostles understand this is a serious threat against the church. We need to fix this now. So I think chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is is such a significant passage of text. It's significant enough that we're going to spend two weeks dealing with it. Um, And so I'll just, I'll close with this. Jesus told us that, um, very famously, he told Peter, after Peter's great confession, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of a living God. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father is in, in heaven. And then he goes on and he says this, And on this, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. You'll notice when Jesus said that, the church didn't even exist. But he said, on this, and I believe on, uh, I won't get into that. The gates of hell will not prevail against against Christ's church. Here's the thing, when he said that, we like that because it's a very triumphal sounding. Oh, look at that. Nothing can hurt us. You know, Christ is always going to be victorious. That's true. But when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, at least implied is that there will be threats against the church. It's implied. I think it's pretty explicit. There will be threats. The church will always be under attack. God's people will always, as a corporate body, will always be under attack. It happened back here in Acts chapter 6. It happened in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. It happened at 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. It happened throughout history. It happened at the Diet of Worms. It happened all the way through, and it continues to happen today. Fortunately, we do have a God and Savior who is guiding his people, and the church will always, um, it will be victorious. We have to realize there are threats. I'm going to ask you guys to pray against both external threats, those threats that come to us from without, um, perhaps people hating what we do, whatever. There are also internal threats. And those are the ones that are most dangerous because they rise up from amongst us. The eternal threat of dissension is repelled by godly people who understood the nature of the church. And so this week I'm just going to ask you, just pray for the church. Pray for this local assembly. And if you have another church home somewhere, pray for, for your church. If you're kind of 
have a church up here in Pine and a church in the valley. Pray for both of your churches that, that those both external and internal threats um, would not cause dissension and division. And don't be the source of it either. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've given to us. We ask that you would guide us this day. We pray that we have a good understanding of your church. Keep us in Christ's name. Help us to love you with all of our being. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.